All right, open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 10, first 20 verses, as we've read. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we'll get one to you. Raise your hand if you don't have one. No shame in that. Really? Just kidding. All right. Go ahead and flip to the next one. All right. For the sake of review, to prepare us for the eighth of the plagues, let's see how well you do. In the book of of Exodus, 430 years after the time when which the Israelis first went into Egypt, might I remind you out of a plague because God had sent a Hebrew boy in, and by the way, because of that Hebrew boy with the dreams that he had had, God used him, raised him up, to deliver the, the Gentiles first, and then the Egyptians, I'm sorry, and then the, the Jews second. And in that, this little area of Egypt that had already been sort of a thriving, but not a world power as we see it at this point, of course, is going to be the only known supplier of cereal in all of the Middle East at the time. So they become very, very powerful. Now again, don't just believe anything I say. Search the Scriptures. Let them have the final say. And so with that, ultimately God had promised, and it goes all the way back to Genesis 15, because in Genesis 15, God had promised Abraham that to confirm this promise that he had, that he would give him the land of Israel, the land, of course, that people are fighting over right now. He said that they would be strangers in a land that was not their own. For 400 years, they would be enslaved. And then after that, they would leave with great possessions. Now, that's a bit of a riddle, if you think about it. Because the idea of being a slave for four centuries and then coming out with everybody's stuff is a bit strange. But God knows what he's doing. So then he raises up. In that fourth generation, just like he promised, Moshe, the man's name means drawn out, who is then brought at 80 before Pharaoh and says, let my people go. For which then... Pharaoh, which you might not be able to see, says, well, who is this God that I should, or the Lord that I should obey him? And with that, of course, Moses says, watch and see. Now, with that, then we go and God starts to systematically take down these, good, thank you. God seems to systematically take down then the ten gods that are sort of primary areas of worship within Egypt. And what we've been doing is we've been trying to go through each one of them and, and actually applying the person uh, or the, the, the issue that really each one of those things people were seeking. For instance, and let's see how well you do with this. Um, the first of them, and boy, it's going to be really hard to see this. This is a river flowing out. What was the first plague? The first plague. What was it? Here's the hint. There's a river running through it. What's the first plague? Welcome to Calvary Chapel Morgue. Okay, anyone? Anyone? It's the Nile to blood. It turns the Nile to blood. And with that, by the way, um, with that then, of course, the first one, of course, is the idea that people worship the Nile and they consider it the source of life. By the way, today God might actually take on a pea. And the reason I say that is that there are some that actually teach that all matter was in the size of a pea and it blew up and it became what you are today. Well, God wants to make sure that you recognize He's the source of life. Second one then, this little cutie. Does anyone remember? What's the second one then? Does anyone remember? Frogs, right. And with that then, go ahead. Uh, The second one is heck. Remember, what the heck? That was the idea here. And she was the purpose of life. She was the one that helped people have children and that was sort of what they worshipped with that. The third then, I don't know if you can see, it's really hard to see these guys today, and I'm sorry about that. It's really kind of hard. Does anyone remember what the third one was? What was that? 
It was things that bit you that were nasty, like ticks and fleas, things that bite and suck. And go ahead. And then the third one, by the way, as people worshipped Geb, by the way, if you remember, he threw dust in the air, as we see through, the, through a series of these. That's how I connect, and that's my identity. And the issue, of course, in each of these is if I've given my life to Jesus, is Jesus really my source of life now, or am I still a carpenter, a musician, an athlete, a student, or whatever? Is that my first thing? And that becomes in how I connect with the world as well. What's my identity? Who am I known as now? The problem is if you've been raised your whole life with a specific gift or gift talent base, it's really kind of hard to let Jesus become the center of your your university. And your universe for that matter too. All right. Okay, going on to the fourth one. Who can remember this one? Who could forget this dear one? What is this one? Flies. Right. And with that then, number four, we have Kefri, which by the way reminds us of the God of the flesh. And the idea is, is what am I doing? Is my flesh still leading me? Am I still governed by my flesh? Or am I submitting that to the living God? Number five, anyone remember this guy? Diseased livestock. And the livestock goes down. And with that then, people worship people like Apis, which by the way is my strength. That's, and by the way, people will sort of recycle this guy, if you remember back in the wilderness when we actually get out there, because the whole idea of it is somebody's going to be strong and take on the battle. And of course, you want to give someone like Apis the credit because he's tangible versus the living God whom you can't see necessarily, but boy, does he work in ways you can gauge. So with that, that's number five. Number six, remember what the sixth one was? Boils, terrible, nasty boils. And with that then, we saw the challenge in regards to our body image and humanity, by the way, because the idea that you couldn't even keep yourself alive. Number seven. Oh boy, you can't even... Oh, by the way, one quick note on that. And number six, that was when we said goodbye to the priests, if you remember. They were boiled out. Okay, next one. Um, who can remember this little cutie? Number seven. If you can't, you're a real nut. Oh, come on, if you can't get that hint, I've done so poor. Newt was the one, and that was the goddess of the sky. Remember, this was the, this was the girl, this was the boy, by the way, brother and sister, and husband and wife. Yeah, we don't go on again to it. Um, and this is supposed to be Pharaoh. And the idea is that Pharaoh, remember, was responsible for the Ka, keeping order. And in keeping order, he was responsible, but at nightfall, she just got tired of holding herself up. Now listen, that the way that this is played out when Moses speaks to Pharaoh in regards to these, when he talks about hail, remember the issue was strength, he says, look at if you, and he, each one has a, has a distinct little statement when he says, if you refuse to let him go, but you still hold them in your own power, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on you. You think you've got the power to hold these people that are God's people? Well, God's hand will be on you and we'll see who's stronger. In regards to this one, if you remember, the issue was that she had the power to hold herself up as the goddess of the sky. And then ultimately she sort of collapsed on her brother. And and with that, by the way, the idea was that she lifted herself up. She had the strength to do so. And listen what he says. If you persist, this is God says, if I'd send my pestilence on you, this is God speaking through Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh. If I had sent all of my pestilences on you and your people, you'd all be dead. But I raised you up, Pharaoh, but as yet you exalt yourself. Do you get it? It's like, here it is. God's going to pick the specific God they worship that says this is the God has the power to hold herself up. That's like you, Pharaoh. You think you propped yourself up. Who do you think propped up the sky? Do you really think that's a, a girl up there? God propped up that sky and it's supposed to testify. The heavens testify of the glory of God and the firmament is handiwork. He goes, you think you've propped yourself up? You think you've done all of this? Well, no, actually, 
God elevated you, and he says, God lifted you up that he would, that his name, listen, his name would be exalted. He lifted you up so that his name would be lifted up instead. And what we really get out of this, and I don't want you to miss this, is as we were ending this text last week in regards to this one at the end of nine, is the area of control. Because every one of us somewhere has that area where we feel like we need to control it. And he's like, look it. You think you have the control to hold your world up? To hold your universe together? Do you really think you have that kind of power? You are so wrong. Because I tell you what, you think you can hold the sky up? Well, the sky is falling, and Pharaoh, so are you. Because the only thing that holds all things together is the living God. And glory to God for that, that I can go to one source and allow my world to be held together. Now listen, friends. Think about what God chooses to, to bring down to show that old Newt isn't holding herself up like she's supposed to. What's the plague, by the way? Hail. That's right. It's hail. Big chunks of the sky falling. And what happens? They don't just sort of bounce or roll. It isn't like things just kind of like gently, they go bam, bam, bam. Giant chunks of ice falling from the sky. They leave big, big damage. And can I just say, that's the problem with our own control. When we take control of something, everything that is left open and undeclared becomes bashed by our control. Ironic, because we think we're pulling it in, and actually what we're doing is we're bashing it down instead. But the problem is there's still other things to be dealt with. Now God is not done yet, because he wants to make sure that we've gotten a full 10-point checkup before we let go. And by the way, and all of these things, where am I at? Where am I at in my view of, God, are you really the source of life? Or I'm trying to get it from my kids or from the ministry or from my wife. God, where are you at in regards to purpose? Are you my purpose or is my purpose being a pastor? Is my purpose being a dad or a father? Uh, I'm sorry, it should be the same thing. Or a husband. You know, I mean, am I getting more of that? My identity more from that? Remember the idea of how those fleas, they just suck. And what happens if we don't get fulfilled in Christ, we suck is what happens. Like the fleas and the ticks. We're just parasites. And by the way, sitting here in the pews, God has no intent for you simply to be a bystander because a bystander sucks from the body and doesn't contribute and that's called a parasite. God really wants every one of us to be raised up in a place where we can actually be a blessing to each other. You don't need my permission to be a blessing. That would be awful. All you need is to be filled with the Lord Jesus Christ and to be a person of integrity. And in that, let God use you in the way God intends to use you. With the fourth of them, who can forget those nasty flies that either took little craters of skin and ate your flesh or worse yet, laid their babies and larvae underneath your skin? Remember that? Those of you around, oh, how fun was that? You think, you know what? That becomes the problem with the flesh. Is that we start to be the host of all things unclean how sad that is. And then as we seek to look at our own strength, say, look at how strong I am outside of the Lord, God has a way of making sure that we recognize that the time is clearest seen is in our greatest weakness. And I don't know about you, but for me, I have no real interest in being weak in and of myself. I don't sign up for things like that. I was raised in a place where being weak, people died for that. And so the idea of actually being honest enough to be weak and to let go, that takes real faith. And then we get to the areas like this. Control. Control? Am I really willing to have enough faith to let God 
take control and not and to release what I thought was control. How sad is that? Oh, beloved, it becomes a horrible thing because what we're left with is a bashed-in world around us that we could have actually blessed instead of bashed. And then we get to our text today. So go ahead, Tay, flip to the next one. And our text, by the way, and here's a couple of clues if you can look, and I know that it's very difficult to read today. We pray for sunny days. They're wonderful days, but they're a little harder here on the text. And it says this, by the way. On verse 4, If you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring, I will bring locusts into your territory. And they'll cover the face of the earth. And not only will they cover the face of the earth, but it says, so that no one will be able to see. To see. And that they shall eat the residue of what is left. Now why is it the residue of what is left? Because your control and my control, that nasty hail has bashed in. Now by the way, again, we have no record in the text that any house was bashed in. And remember, the warning was, if you really love your servants... If you really love your livestock, they're going to have to come into the house with you. Verse 6, notice it says, they will fill your houses. Notice, by the way, then what God gives us is the hint of these things. In verse 1 he says, and look at it with me in the text. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his Pharaoh and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him, and that I may tell that you may tell, in the hearing of your son and your son's sons, the mighty things I have done in Egypt, and my signs in which I have done among them, that they may know that I am the Lord. Now Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh, and listen to this statement that's unique to this particular approach. He said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, that's the same. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Mm. And I think we've got our hint. Flipping to the next slide. Go ahead, Tay. This, by the way, is a swarm of locusts. It looks a bit pixelated, to be honest. I don't know if you can see that at all. But let me show you another picture of a swarm of locusts. Take a look at this one. Now, I don't even know if you look at it. It looks like a Monet. I mean, the entire camera is filled dot to dot with those cute little creatures. Go on, next one, please. Um, and, and if you could see, it looks like a tree. All of this is just locusts. That's all that is, is just locusts. There have been at least three recorded major uh, locust epidemics, if you can call them those, that have taken place, that have actually taken between 10 to 40 miles wide. In other words, really, to be honest, there was a locust swarm the size of London that came through and ate everything in its path, in its path, by the way, in the Midwest, um, in Colorado, and so forth, right during the time of the Dust Bowl. Okay, next one, please. Um, I don't know if you maybe got a better look at that. That's um, a particular one that's sort of a pink-colored locust, uh, and... There they are. That's not the ground, as you might be aware of. That's entirely, that's locusts. So everywhere you step, it's a locust. John the Baptist would be so fat. All right, next one. Um, here, if you can see that, that's a broom trying to push them away after one of those locust plagues. And uh, here's what the Chinese do with them, by the way. They got their cue, I guess, from John the Baptist. And that locust on a skewer. Yeah, anyone wants them? 
By the way, is anyone Egyptian here? Just checking, because you know I know that today is sort of an international Thanksgiving. I didn't know if you were going to bring these. All right, next one, please. Okay, well, let me tell you a little story. And again, I'm not telling you this is truth. This is actually folklore, but it happens to be the Egyptology. This is their study of gods. Remember these two, brother, sister, husband, wife. That's the idea. There's the um, mom is the sky, dad is the earth. And they have five kids. As they have five kids, by the way, one of the five kids was a punk. Yes, as a matter of fact, he was a, and he was a nasty punk that we call Seth. And maybe he was so nasty because he had an armadillo on his head. Well, with that in mind, that he was such a nasty one that the other four had to band together to try to protect the world from nasty Seth. Seth basically, by the way, becomes the god of disorder. Interesting, by the way, because I learned something as I... Actually, and it came from writing a Darjeeling train. I'll explain that in a moment. But understand in this, the other four are all, one way or another, interesting enough, related to two things. One, to horticulture, in other words, agriculture. And then the other one, by the way, to death. Funny, and the idea of it is that they do their job well crops grow green. If they don't do their job well, everybody dies. Now I remind you, without water and without things being green, nothing lives. Everybody dies. Well, with that in mind, there was one other person responsible. See, basically, this was sort of even. Bad Seth, the other four kind of good, trying to hold it up, but the one thing that toppled it back over was the number five player on the good team, and that was Pharaoh. So understand that when we as Egyptians were looking to Pharaoh, we were looking, expecting him to provide. But those who are American know that. Because to be honest, they kind of look at the president that way sometimes. Well, that's, that's the promises a president makes. Is, well, there'll be a chicken in every pot, is kind of the idea. Now, the queen doesn't have to make those kind of promises, but it happens like that in America. Then the reason is because we don't vote for the queen. But, but with that in mind, please understand that that people were looking at Pharaoh with the idea that you have to take care of us. It's your job. So when God starts taking this down, he takes down so much more. Now understand, what made Seth such a nasty boy in the first place? Well, he was such a beautiful child, and he got filled with pride. And because he was so proud, he thought he could do the whole thing himself. He didn't need brothers and sisters. He wanted the whole world to himself. Interesting, because that's basically dad. If you think about it, that's dad's job. He wanted dad's job. The idea was, this is my world, man. Don't mess with it. Don't muck with my world. This is my world. Stay out of my world. I, unless I, this is my world. If you want entrance in, I'll give you permission into my world if I choose to grant it. Well, that was Seth, but unfortunately that wasn't just Seth. That was Pharaoh. If you think about the whole thing we're looking at here, this is a real tragic story of an unrepentant, proud man who's convinced that he's all that, named Pharaoh. He will die as a temporary king, but he will be eternally kingdomless. He will be famous on earth, but in the end of it all, he'll be unknown in heaven, and you have to make the choice. Is that what you really want? And I've learned this as, I, as we go through these ten plagues. If I don't want to surrender to God, God will use my resistance to bring others to Him. Have you learned that? Maybe you've heard it this way. If you can't be an example, you'll wind up being a warning. He systematically takes not only me down, but He will exalt His name even over my stubbornness. All that I trust, all that I'm comprised of, all that I represent, He can can take down anytime He wants to. Especially if I think I'm the one holding it up. Please hear this, friends. God loves you. Jesus died for you on the cross to be with you. 
And he would rather die than live without you. But if you want to run from him, he also loves the people around you enough to use you as an example. And it is amazing how some people will just not get it. Like Pharaoh. I go back to our text and look at what it says again here. First of all, God says that I've hardened his heart. Notice that. The word, by the way, is the word kavad. Could you say kavad? Under, no, understand something. We need to make this clear. Kabad is never, it never means change. God never changes someone's mind here. Nor does he change, for that matter, Pharaoh's heart. The word kavad means to make heavy, to make strong, to cement in. In other words, what God did is he took what Pharaoh's resolve already was and he strengthened it. That was the idea. As God doesn't have a problem, and here's, understand why. Because God is not the, God, what God doesn't want is just simply to harden your heart so you'll go to hell. That's not what God wants. What God wants is for you to permanently surrender to Him your control and your pride. That's a little rougher. By the time we're done with this chapter, notice, or even by this section, 1 through 20, Pharaoh will say, okay, 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 forgive me this once of this death. Remove this death from me. He never says remove my sin from me. He never says remove my pride from me. Remove my animosity from me. <laughs> what he says is, there's a problem in the house. Just get it out. Just this once. Just this once. Why does he have to say just this once? Because he's like, what he's saying is, all the other times I can handle it. Have you ever been there? It's like, God, just this once. You know, I, I know that I said I'd never really ask anything of you. I really don't have a right to you or whatever. But I tell you what, just this once, fix this. I'll take care of my life from that point on. Is that where you're at? If so, then you've got an issue with pride before God just like He does. And God has brought an interesting thing to bring hail like control, which makes sense where, bam, it's bashing stuff. It makes sense that pride would be this. Because you know what pride does? Pride eats up everything else. Once you've bashed everything with your need of control, your pride will eat it all up. So all you're left with is a desert. Every proud person given the absolute freedom to be who they are will live in the wilderness that they've created of their own life. Their whole life will be empty. It will be waterless. It will be dry. It will be everything that lacks goodness. And in the end of it all, you go, check out. And you know what you say? Something like, I'm a self-made man. This is my self-made world. And people will be like, yeah, and that's why you live alone here. Because it's awful. Who wants to join you here? Oh, what's that? That's something green? And here's the problem. You come in and Christ, by the way, God makes real clear in the book of Psalms about those that are planted in the house of the Lord flourish in the courts of their God, says Psalm 92, 13. He talks about those who delight in the law of the Lord are like trees planted by rivers of living water. They're evergreen. But I can't be planted in the house of the Lord and I can't be planted by the rivers of water and delight in His will if I'm too busy trying to prove to you that I'm all that. Because the bottom line is, I'm not all that. He's all that and more. And God's not in a competition on those areas. The problem is for some of us, we've not grown up weak. We grew up fighting or we grew up in one way or another trying to prove we're strong. But I'll tell you what, I remember learning a valuable lesson that the stronger guy was the guy who walked away from the fight. Because I knew friends of mine that we had taught at the same dojo and they were, they could rip your head off. 
I mean, I knew some of these guys, they had the power to do some things that were really ugly. And I watched some guy bump into one of them and just try to start something. And I watched my friend display this amazing control, and he was a Christian, and I didn't know it at the time. But he just, he's like, you know, and he didn't even say the things that I would have said back then, because I didn't know Jesus. Like, you don't have any idea how much I could kill you and take great pleasure in it at this moment. But, you know, he just kind of looked and he just said, not going to happen. You know, what are you, chicken? Come on, what are you, chicken? You want some of this? And he's like, "Uh, I don't have a taste for chicken. So, and then I look at God, who, by the way, has all power. Could you imagine being cuffed, in essence, being torn down, being blindfolded, and somebody hitting you and saying, who hit you now? Come on, who hit you now, punk? And you know who it is. You created them. Imagine what Jesus could have pulled out. Your name is Brutus. You're 32 years old. You stopped wetting the bed at 12. Your worst embarrassing moments. And the things he could have given him at that moment. The things he could have given him the day before with all that knowledge. Your wife just left you. Let me tell you why. The guy's name, you know, it's like, think of the things he could have said, but he didn't. I mean, all that power in his hands and didn't fire back. As a matter of fact, listen to this. In Isaiah 53, it says, How or to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, what is the arm of the Lord? That's the strength of God. He grew up like a tender shoot, like a branch on dry ground. He rose up. He had no stately form or majesty that would be drawn to him. Do you realize what that means? God, the only guy that could pick his body. Now, some of you think, well, I kind of did, but, you know, God could pick it beforehand. You could just modify it. He didn't pick a big, massive body. So that whole Jesus that's sort of like, you know, he just kind of did 15 reps and, you know, that's not really. Well, he was a builder. Yeah, you know what? So was Bob the builder. He's not that big either. Anyways, but it says that he had no stately former majesty. And what that means, he wasn't really tall. He wasn't really greatly looking. He says he had nothing that we would desire him. Ladies, he probably went to prom with his sister. Well, anyways, the, get the idea. And I'm not, trying to make it, I'm not trying to make it weird. I'm trying to make it real. He said he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And that's the next place it says. And like one from whom men hide their faces. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely our sorrows he carried and our grief he bore. You know how God showed his strength? By carrying your mess. Carrying my mess. That's how he showed his strength. And it's said, by the way, what's really clear in Jeremiah and in Isaiah is that he was like a lamb silent before his shears when he went to the slaughter. All the things he could have said, but he didn't. The power he could have exerted like we would have, but he didn't. Because all Jesus had to do was change his mind and we would all have gone to hell without a choice. And God says, now that's the power of the Lord. Interesting, because in 1 Peter chapter 2, by the way, it says, to this you were called, that Christ suffered in the flesh, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Then he said, for when he was insulted or despised, he insulted not. And when he was abused, he didn't actually even threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Because that's how Christ suffered. You know how Christ suffered? He took it and he handed it over instead of firing back. Man, it's so much easier. I'll be honest, at least for me, it's so much easier to fire back. And I tell you, that doesn't make for a good anything. Good pastor, good sports player, good, mar- you know, good husband. Mm-mm. I think the, the best you know, um, 
arguments, if I can use those terms, my wife and I have had are those moments when I bit my tongue and it was done. And I look at this and I realize that God shows his strength in not open firing like he could. Pharaoh was opening up every tool he's got to fire out to try to prove he's still got, he's still all that. What's clear by the middle of this, have you noticed, is that even his own servants know better. Look at it with me. God says, these are the three things I want to do in in hardening that, in strengthening that resolve. One, I'll show my signs before him. That's verse one. Verse two, the second, in other words, the first thing is, is that God's going to make sure that he finishes the job here. Second, to give me a testimony that transcends generations. It says, that I may show these signs of mine before him, and then he may tell in the hearing, that you may tell in the hearing of your sons and your sons' sons, by the way. Your son and your sons' sons. The mighty things that I've done in Egypt. I think, oh my goodness, really? And my signs on which I've done among them? In other words, you'll have this amazing story to tell your grandkids. Let me tell you what God did personally. And by the way, can I just say it this way? God really wants to give me a great testimony, and you too. And by the way, he doesn't have to do that by me throwing myself into sin. He can do it simply by showing his power over whatever opposition God will allow to rise up against me. And then in that finally, that it says, which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. And in the end of it all, notice it isn't that you may know I am a Lord, but in the end of it all, what you will conclude is I'm the only one. I'm it. I'm the only one worth bowing to. So how long are you going to humble yourself before me? If you don't, well then we're going to have to have some fun with some locusts, aren't we? And look at what it says in regards to pride in verses 5 and 6. One, they'll cover the face of the earth. In other words, pride just expands and expands. It just never seems to end. Have you noticed that? Have you ever gone, yeah, that's enough of me, I'm full. Now, if you're walking in the Spirit, maybe. But I guarantee you in the flesh, there'll never be that. Second, no one will ever even be able to see the earth around you. The reason is, is you're so full of you, nobody else is going to be able to see anything. It says then, they'll eat what's left over from all of your control. In verse 6, notice it says, they'll fill your houses. By the time this thing gets done, your whole house will be full of you. Your world will be full of you. Everything will be full of you because it's all about you. And that becomes the problem. And let me just say, the opposite of this is humility. My question is, as when people that don't know Jesus and they hear about Christianity, do you think that's the first place they go? Do you think that what they think is, oh yeah, you know what it's about? It's about a bunch of humble people that are actually thinking about other people more than themselves. Is that really where it goes? Man, I wish it did. How about you? Well, the problem is, is, let's be honest, anybody can call themselves a Christian. As a matter of fact, if I were Satan, and I'm not, I just want to make that clear, if I were, I, would be, I, I know he'd do more damage pretending to be a Christian than he ever would by just trying to make himself look cool. And I know that he does that. And people go, oh yeah, well, what about that guy? That guy's a Christian. I'm like, how do you know he's a Christian? Because he said he was. I'm like, Satan says he's a Christian. The demons call themselves ministers of righteousness. And some of you know this because you went out with a guy that said he was a Christian, and in the end of it all, he turned out to be Satan, or pretty darn close. And what I've learned about that is just saying you're something doesn't mean anything. In Hebrew, by the way, in a Hebrew culture, nobody's declared anything until they do it. You cannot be called a shoe salesman until you sell a shoe. Weird, isn't it? Here, you could have like, you know, 15 signs about, you know, the voted the best, you know, shoe store in all the block. You may be the only one within your borough, but you're the best, you know, and, and you've never sold a shoe. But you can't be called a shoe salesman until you've sold one. Could you imagine what that would be like if it were a Christian? What would that look like? 
Well, you can't really be called a Christian until you what? Are Christ-like? Isn't that what Christian means? Should one of you are comfortable with that? Now notice it says then, they're going to fill your houses, these bugs. And then he, ver- then he turned and he went out from Pharaoh. Verse 7. Pharaoh's servants said to Pharaoh, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go. Now remember God said he was going to harden the heart, not just of Pharaoh, but notice it said of his servants as well. Now remember, if it means to strengthen the resolve, my question to you is, was there resolve to let them go? How much guts does it take to stand up to Pharaoh and say, you know, you really should listen to this guy? Think about that. Because Pharaoh has the right to kill you. And I wonder if God actually strengthened the resolve of people to stand against Pharaoh in this. And the reason I say that is, is, well, if God hardened my heart, would that be a good thing? Now listen, listen, according to its definition, Kavad, if what I really wanted, all God did was cement in what I really already had in my heart, would you want him to do that? Is your heart in a place today where what you really want, you know, is what God wants? Because in the end of it all, it's sort of like, you ever have that? It's like, you know, I really want this, but I get distracted, I get weak, weird things happen, but honestly, this is the cry of my heart. So God hardened it then in that. Does that make sense? Because the reason I say that is God has the power clearly and has demonstrated the power to strengthen your resolve. See, I've heard it said this way. Well, look, at it. God will change your heart if you're willing to change your mind. But in it, you've got to have a choice. You've got to make a choice in that. And it's like, look at Lord, I choose to choose you. Now, will you strengthen me in that resolve? Cement this in now while I'm in a good moment change what is necessary so that I'm not challenged as much in this or tempted more to step away from this resolve? Because if you're anything like me, my Christian walk looks a little bit more like a dance. It's kind of a cha-cha. You know, I step forward and then I step back. I step forward. I'm like, God, I love you. I love you. I'm not really sure about them. Oh, I love you. Oh, I'm outside of church. Oh, I mean, that's that kind of where we're at. Because if it is, well then, to be honest, then you kind of get the idea that somewhere in there there's still a battle with a locust. Let me tell you a story. We'll get back into our text. Kansas City. Now, I don't know what you know or don't know about Kansas City. I've one experience there. There was a, a, a guy in our fellowship in the, in the days of you were back in California. He was really, really tall. He was about Jeffrey's height, to give you an idea. And thin as a rail. Thinner, thinner than Jeffrey. But Jeffrey's thin, but just the same. I mean, and, and, and he, had fa- and he, was, a, he was a he was a military boy. And he had fallen in love with this girl that was about the polar opposite physically. She was this... Now enjoy the gentle sound. All right, the waterfalls. All right, now, she was tiny and kind of round. When they stood next to each other, they looked like the number 10. All right, maybe that's why we got the interference. So uh, you get the idea, right? And he loved her. And he wanted to fly me out to where he was stationed to do their wedding, which happened to be Kansas City. Now... He was this sweet all-American boy. Oh, bless his heart. Um, and and, and I, he, just, he was just a really sweet kid. She was just as sweet. You got cavities hanging around with them. You know, you're kind of worried about your insulin intake because they were just so sweet. And, and in that, she always had this dream of getting married at, their father, at her father's fishing hole, of all places. Because just some of the most wonderful moments of her life. And some of you girls maybe have a dad like this. But it's like the, some of the most profound moments where she would daydream about having a husband were those moments where 
she would just be sitting there fishing with her dad on this fishing hole. So, okay, whatever. Okay, you know, I don't care. So we, you know, we get there and, and we, we weren't able to actually, we weren't actually able to try to get the whole thing rehearsed at the spot. So we just kind of had to go wing it the day of the wedding as far as that is. And these girls came out in classic Southern Belle style um, dresses, which by the way, kind of look like shuttlecocks. If you guys know what like badminton things are, right? They just, woof, they just shout out like big old bells, right? And so, and here they go. And the greatest part about it is, I mean, she had had this dream her whole life. Now, I'm, I'm standing there, and, and these guys are all navy. So I'm standing there with five or six guys, and they're all just dressed, and of course they're in kind of in attention, just looking sharp. They got their swords on their sides, these white outfits, all decorated. And these, I mean, it just, it, we should have been on a cake at that point, right? And I'm just standing there. And of course, you know, as a pastor, you just, how do you match that? You just try to look solemn or something, right? And hold my Bible or something, you know, just want to, you know, whatever. And the first girl comes up. Now, I remind you, there's, she's going to be the last. The, 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 you know, of course, the, the um, girl getting married is going to be the last. Her name's Shelly. And the first girl comes up. And as she comes up, you can hear these beautiful things chirping. You can hear the locusts chirping as all this. They come over. Well, that's where it gets fun. You see, when you come over the veranda, which is in front of us here, well, well, there are locusts on the ground. Now, you don't really think much of it because they're really not congregating necessarily. They're just kind of, well, the problem is they're basically flying grasshoppers, which isn't so bad because they're not going to fly unless you do something to rustle them, right? Like, i.e., the front of your dress. So I don't know if you've ever thought about this. So what happens is the front of the dress rustles the grasshopper, the locust, and then they have no place to fly but up. You learn a lot about a girl when you notice, when you can learn what happens when a bug's flying up her dress. So, every one of them had a different, so yeah, so kind of, you kind of see one come up the veranda, and everything's of course all solemn, and it's like, <laughs> and they're trying to kind of gain it back, and shaking them so, sorry, and all that, and, then like, and just one after another, and we're watching all this, and I'm thinking, there's just no way this is going to get weirder. She's a trooper, man, she's a soldier. That girl comes up, she just goes, <laughs> She's not going to let you know that there are locusts underneath, right? And so all this is happening. And then finally, we finally get up and everything, the music has finally stopped and we figure now it's going to get solemn. And just as that happens, the best man has a bee and it lands on his neck. And as the best man has the, and I'm just about, right? And as it happens, the guy looks next to him, that's next to him, and he recognizes the bee. So he tries to do what any good friend would, right? He tries to swat it away. But his friend, for whatever reason, has a terrible sense of hand-eye coordination. So I kid you not, they're kind of standing there like this, and he goes like this, he goes... And he hits him in the neck, which of course only aggravates the bee. And so I kid you not, I'm just, I go, let us pray, right? And also the guy goes, oh my dear God, this is the wedding in Kansas City. Anyways, all of that to say this. You go, why did I even tell you that? Because there's something about trying to hide your locusts that really just isn't good. Well, I had to fit in here somehow, all right? It's my only locust story. But get the idea here that this is what happens when you've got locusts that are kind of hiding and you're kind of going, I'm cool, I'm good. And when we, we fake that we're, we're humble, but everything's still about us. And what happens is when you're faking being humble, but it's still all about you, you get offended all the time. And then it's like, man, I'm just, I'm not gonna go, I don't wanna be with those Christians, I don't wanna be with those people in that church, they're perfect in every way except this, I don't know, I just hate them. You know, and all of a sudden it's like you're offended. Well, whatever happened, I don't know, but I just, I just, but I hate it. You go, what in the world? And somewhere down there, you got locusts flying underneath your body. In this situation here, 
These people are kind of saying, look, you know, you really should just let them out. Just let the locusts go. Get rid of this before this becomes a really bad deal. Let him go. And so Pharaoh actually offers a compromise. And I won't develop it because there are four compromises and we'll make that its own message. But what he says is he brings, you know, he brings Moses in and he goes, all right, which tells me that Pharaoh actually listened to his servants to some degree. Did you get that? They're like, you know, you really should let him go. So he kind of calls him in and he goes, so who's going to go? Who are you going to let go? And Moses is like, what do you mean who? Everybody. Everything. We're all leaving now. And he goes, huh, fat chance, pal. That's not going to happen. God better be with you when you want to try to pull that stunt. Think about the pride a moment like that. His entire, every field outside of the area where the Israelis live has been pummeled by hail. And by the way, if we have the kind of time of year this is, this isn't, I mean, there's no real time of hail, as you're probably aware of, in Egypt. But to make things worse, locusts aren't indigenous to Egypt either. So it isn't like it's something that they're used to. You don't find a lot of locust-headed gods in Egypt or any of that. They're just really, to be honest, they come from the east. And they're sort of to this day known for that. Pharaoh said then, well... God better be with you if that's the case. You will not allow this. So God says, well, then let's bring this to pass. Verse 12. And what Moses says in the simple sense is, and please hear me, because this will be the issue when we talk about compromise. Everything goes, friends, everything. When you want to follow Jesus, there's no line you can draw. And that becomes the problem. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And that becomes the problem. You think somewhere down there God's given you this cool little marker and you're like, God, I'll follow you, but to this much. Or God, I'll follow you, but don't touch this area. Or God, I'm really cool, but don't mess with this part of my identity. And God's like, you know what? That's the first area I'm going to go after because what that's called is idolatry. And and God isn't into timeshare. He wants you completely. The question is, what happens when God deals with your pride the way he wants to deal with your pride? By the way, You can't just let it trickle away. It's going to have to be dealt with. Verse 11, he says then, Go now, you who are men, serve the Lord. That's what you wanted. He drove them out. Verse 12, God says, Then we'll stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt. You need every herb of the land and all that the hail has left. Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind. Why an east wind? Because east tends to not be a really good thing. If you remember when Cain was, went out from the presence of the Lord, he went east of Eden. It came to pass, by the way, as well, if you think about it, even Lot chose for himself the area of the east in Genesis 13. It was the area, by the way, that Nimrod went when he went east to start Babylon in Genesis 11. And in Genesis 41, when Joseph, the guy who brings them into the land in the first place, remember he says, I dreamt I had these seven, these ten corn, um, years of corn, uh, seven years of corn, I'm sorry, that were really nice, and then seven that were really beaten and blighted by the east wind. And it makes sense to me, because if you think about where Israel is placed, and even Egypt, to the east of it then is the desert, to the west of it is the Mediterranean. So when something blows in from the east, it's hot and dry. When something blows in from the west, it's cool and wet. Does that make sense? 
the two try to meet, then it gets really ugly. And that's where things like hail and those kind of things take place. But if you kind of get the idea here, if it's really hot out, you would pray for a west wind. If it's super cold out, you would pray for an east wind. Does that kind of make sense? Except that traditionally in Israel to this day, east kind of has a negative connotation. But then if you're an Israeli, that kind of makes sense. East of you is Jordan, and then it's Iraq, and then it's Iran. Which part of that gives you a warm fuzzy? You know, especially if you're an Israeli. So with that in mind, you get the idea that God brings it from the east. Now, by the way, he still brings that thing, because there was one group that was sent east, for what it's worth, in Genesis 42. And I challenge you to take a look at it on your own. Because Abraham, when he was much older, after his wife had died, married again. Now you'd think, boy, this guy's in his hundreds at this point. And, and who knows whether she's a gold digger? I don't know. Anyways, but she, he has several children. Many more children, by the way, with this woman, Keturah. And it says he takes these boys and he sends them east with gifts. And it's interesting because the prophecy was that when God, his son, when this Messiah would show up, that these sons would return back from the east bearing gifts. That shouldn't surprise us because all you have to get to is Matthew chapter 2 and you find that there are these wealthy guys that return from the east bearing gifts to the baby Jesus. Where did that come from? The first book of the Bible, by the way. So with that in mind, let's close this up. The locusts went all over the land, verse 14 of Egypt, rested on the territory of Egypt. It was so severe, there would never been anything like this before. And just like God promised, verse 15, they covered the face of, of the whole earth. The land was darkened. They ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. There remained nothing green on the trees, the plants, the fields, the land of Egypt. Pharaoh called for Moses, and here's our temporary repentance. And is this where you're at today? Because God would rather play for keeps. He called for Moses and Aaron in haste. Why? Because his life at this moment is really bad. And as it is, he says, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, please forgive my sin just this once. Don't forgive all my sins. Don't forgive my stubbornness and all of that. Whatever the sin was, entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me. Notice what he wants to take away. This death only. Don't take away my sin. Don't take away, oh, have you ever thought that? That when in the book of Psalms, it tells us that God forgives our sins, by the way. Do you remember how far? In Psalm 103, 12. He casts it as far as east is from the west. Well, anyways, just the same here. He's going, look, could you take away the death? Don't take away, and understand this is a similar situation to a lot of others. And that is, look at, you know what? I hate the circumstances so much that just get the circumstances away from me. I don't hate my sin, but I really hate the circumstances. So what happens is a guy's been being licentious. He thinks he has a disease. And he prays, God, just take away any option of this disease before I get the blood test back. And God says, no, I want to take away the sin. I want you to hate the sin as much as you would hate the results. And the guy's been drinking, and he's been drinking hard, and he woke up and he's not sure what he did last night. And rumor has it there's a warrant out for his arrest. The police are coming for him. And he says, God, please, I'll do anything. Just make sure the police don't, either don't make it to my house or I really don't have that warrant after all. And God says, I wish you hated the sin as much as you hated the, the results. Because if you hate only the results, then you'll go back to the sin as soon as the consequences are over. And that's where Pharaoh is. 
He's like, just get these locusts out of here. In other words, get the results of my pride out of here. It's eating everything. My whole life is becoming barren. It's empty. It's dry. And let me just say, Christian, that could be you just as much as anyone else, couldn't it? The problem is there's a lot more green to eat on a Christian's life, if you think about it. Because we, we know what it's like to be planted in the house of the Lord. And we know what it's like to flourish. And we know joy over happiness. And we know peace over mild sedentary rest. And we know what it's like to have real honest love and not just lust. Or not just to have a warm fuzzy. And all of a sudden we know that. And all of a sudden we start putting us in the middle of it. And everything dries up. And there's so much to dry up. That to be honest, here's where we started. Here's where we are. Even backsliding halfway through it, we still feel pretty good. Because we compare to where we were and we think, oh, I'm not as bad as I was, but I'm just not as good as I was either now. God doesn't want that. Man, if you don't want to hand that over to Him, you can dry up and die. But God has no intent for that. Well, what happens? How does it have to be dealt with? Let's close up. It says here, that verse 18, Moses went out from Pharaoh and he entreated the Lord. And the Lord turned a very strong west wind. Now, for what it's worth, the word wind in the Hebrew is the word ruach. Could you say ruach? Give it a try. Ruach. Now, try not to, you know, like, hurl. Ruach. It's the same word that's used for spirit, for what it's worth. Every time you read the word spirit in the Old Testament, it's the word ruach. And it says, he took this strong west wind, which would be cool, which would be full of water and he blew those he blew those locusts he blew those locusts away into the sea of red you see my pride and all the result of it they have to drown they have to drown in the red sea here's the good news God sent his only begotten son Jesus the Christ to die on the cross on my behalf so that the river of His forgiving blood could be the very Red Sea that all of my pride and sins are buried in eternally. The question is, well, how much is left when it's done? Well, this is what it says. It says that there remained not one locust at all in the territory of Egypt. God's Red Sea is sufficient to bury it all and wash it away. Now look at God's Holy Spirit, even at this very moment, is at work speaking to you. And I don't even have to be in the middle of that because I'm not supposed to be. But God knows you better than I ever will. And He knows everything you struggle with that I don't. He knows right now those areas you think are great victories that God knows really aren't. Those areas that are struggles that you're trying to make littler that are actually much bigger because you're not handing them over to Him those areas you've made really about you that are supposed to be really about Him. And today He wants to bury them all. He wants to set you free. That you would be evergreen. That you would flourish and bear fruit in due season. And that you wouldn't be dry, desperate, deserted. God doesn't want that. But God wants us to set you free. So friends, hear me out. My prayer today, first is for every Christian and myself included, that we wouldn't do a temporary repentance where what we really want is just our life to get better. God, remove the locusts, remove all of the things that make my life just kind of less happy, more uncomfortable, more inconvenient. But today, friends, 
My heart is that we would hate our sin like he does because it kills us. And that we would lay down our pride before the Lord and in doing so allow Jesus to become everything. Therefore, when someone asks why our day is so awesome, we could say Jesus because we are confident it really is. And it would be amazing how much more bold we'll become when it ceases to become about us. But if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, and even if you've never heard anything other than this, please hear this. God loves you so much that Jesus died on the cross so that every one of your wrongdoings, thoughts, and tents could be paid for. Because God, as a righteous judge, punishes all guilt. And by the way, just issuing mercy doesn't punish our guilt. God has to bring a substitute or, or punish you. But God in his love for you doesn't want to punish you. He actually wants to give you his innocence. Listen to this as we get ready to pray. With like the God Seth, that people, by the way, worshipped, like, by the way, many of the gods in, in India, on the Darjeeling train, when we get off and we're in north in the area near Calcutta and we start heading north, I see this man, he's in his 90s, and he's rolling down a hill naked with pieces of broken bone and glass he had put in the road on the way. Like, why is this man doing this? And they said, because, well, Kali is the god of, one of the gods of destruction. And with that, he's trying to keep him away. And I realized something, something radically different between our god and any other, and that is, with every other god, you kind of do your thing to keep him away. Have you noticed that? I don't worship Jesus to keep him away. I worship Jesus because he lives inside of me. Because he's near. But try to see the people that are actually trying to blow themselves up for their land and calling it Shahada. Or if they're doing that because they think in the end of it all what they'll get is to embrace their God. Do you really think that's what they're going to get? Do you really think they think that's what they're going to get? Or is he a vindictive, wrathful God that they're just trying to keep at bay, keep away? And if I can just do the right things, he won't come near how sad is that, that God would create you in such a way so that everything you do is to keep him away? Think about that. Do you really think that, that I had children because what I really wanted was to scare them so much that they wouldn't want to be near me? You've seen my kids. How much more of God who's perfect. As we go to prayer, Christians, I'd like you to realize that you should actually grow a spine when you tell people Jesus is the only way because he is. And not only is he the only, he's the only way to a God who loves them. There's a million ways to try to run away from a God that you've invented that hates you. But there's only one way to a God who loves you. And that's through an innocence that only God provides as a gift. Why would you want something else when God offers you a gift of that innocence at Jesus' death on the cross? So as we go to prayer, friends, may God's Holy Spirit work in you right now like that beautiful west wind to cool that savage heart of yours let him blow all of this into the Red Sea. By the way, this will be the first of two major Red Sea encounters as far as Moses is concerned, isn't it? And a beautiful, a beautiful precursor for the coming attractions you'll see in just a few chapters. Pray with me, would you please? God, thank you so much for your beautiful word. Thank you for the way that you've gone before us. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you, God, that you're not the God of disorder, but the God of order. Thank you, you're not just the God of, that you're not the God of, of terror and terrorism, but the God of redemption and love. And you get no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You've made that clear. 
but that they would turn to you and live. You desire all men to be saved, you tell us in 1 Timothy, and to come to a knowledge of the truth. You don't want any to perish, but to come to repentance, you tell us in the Peters. And God, I just thank you that you don't want us to... We're not known by our guns. We're not known by our, our protests. And even what we stand against, we're known by our love. And God, make us people that are known more by what we stand for than what we stand against. But having the strength to stand against the lies because the truth is so much more beautiful. And I pray for every Christian, myself included in here, God, right now, please, please, take our pride. That there not be a locust left in our land. But that we would be people today who love you, who cherish you, and allow you the, the credit and the glory and the honor you deserve. Because truly, you are everything. So God, I commit this to you. And God, I pray today for every one of us in here that we could actually rest in you, knowing our life is in your hands. And right now, if there be any or many who have yet to say yes to the gift of Jesus Christ, Jesus says, you must be born again. He does not say it would be a good idea, it will give you a better seat, this puts you in first class. He says, you must be. And to be born again, it is as simple as accepting the gift of Jesus Christ, surrendering to His gift. Allowing Him to be the Lord of your life. So I'm going to pray a prayer and ask you to listen. And if you agree, I ask you simply to say Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here it is. God in heaven, I confess to you I'm a sinner. I know I've done wrong. I've felt wrong. I've intended wrong. And God, you as a righteous judge have the right to punish all wrongdoing. So I believe that you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross so that all my sin and the world's sin could be punished. And then on the third day, just like your Scripture promised, you rose again. So, I say yes. Yes to Jesus Yes to His gift at the cross. And I hand you my life. So please, draw me to you. Make me yours. Make me pure. Make me that new creation you promise. As I surrender to you now, take my pride and use me now as a sanctuary for your glory. As I am yours, I am yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen. Friends, thank you for the privilege of being able to, to worship with you, to study the Word with you. I thought we'll end with a song. How's that? Um, I'll just jump on the piano since it's there. And then you guys get ready. We're going to have an international Thanksgiving, our first. I don't know which of you brought things. I saw some Turkish things in there. That got me excited. I know that um, Chris is whipping up some uh, Greek burgers.
So, uh, and if you, and if you didn't bring anything, I have a feeling we'll have more than enough. Can I just say again, thank you for the honor of being able to be your pastor and the privilege of your attention. Why don't we stand, we'll sing, and we'll dismiss.